Hello and welcome to Let's Talk Clean Air. My name is Dusty Rhodes and I'm joined once again by our co-host from Camphill, John Holmes, also known as The Filter Guy. Our last episode, entitled The Professor, was a masterclass of clear science-backed guidance on improving indoor air from a globally recognised leader in building science. He gave us really straightforward strategies and showed us how even small changes can meaningfully impact health, well-being and cognitive function. After the podcast, we kept talking because Jeff was just fascinating talking about the pros and cons of things like handheld sensors, balancing the quality of life and the cost of indoor air quality, and some really simple things that building managers can look at to get the best air quality at work. Fortunately, we kept recording that conversation so we can bring you all of this in a special bonus episode of Let's Talk Clean Air with Professor Jeffrey Siegel, a renowned expert with an academic career in air quality stretching from Berkeley to Texas and his current position as the Professor of Civil Engineering at the University of Toronto. Here it is. Jeff, can I ask then for maybe a building manager, a facility manager who is listening today after everything that you have said, how can they get the best? And when I say the best, I mean the most realistic air quality at work. Yeah, great question. And I think practical advice is is important and is kind of in short supply. So the first thing I would say is whatever decision you're making about air cleaning in your building, make sure you understand how it works and how to use it well. So if you're using some type of central filter or air cleaner, you know, address all the issues of flow and of bypass and so on. Make sure you, uh, if you're using a, a room solution, make sure you understand all the issues about placement, you know, simple stuff that seems so obvious that people often kind of ignore it. But, you know, a lot of room air cleaning solutions make noise and that affects how people use them. So I can't tell you, every classroom that I teach in these days has uh, room air cleaners. And the number of times I go into the classroom and it's turned off because it's noisy uh, is really, really high. And that happens even more when people have more control over their spaces. So kind of understanding those real world issues and then also understanding the maintenance issues. It sounds so silly, but you know, uh, the question I get the most in kind of private conversations is how often should I change my filters? And, you know, people who are doing this in commercial buildings are relying on, on a manufacturer or a, a filter distributor who, you know, obviously has an incentive to change filters more. And so they want to know, am I changing filters too much, which costs money? Am I changing filters too little because of some of these declines and other issues? but really understanding the maintenance issues. And um, the answer I give for people in their homes is, okay, change the filter whenever the manufacturer recommends. If when you change it, it looks really dirty, then try changing it more frequently in the future. If you change it and it looks really clean, it doesn't mean it's okay because a lot of what's being removed, you can't see very well, but it might mean that you are, for instance, running your fan less than the, than the average person and you can go a little bit longer. And so, you know, th- there is a little bit of an experiential piece here. It depends different, like in, in, in a building that has a lot of activity and people moving around and uh, maybe in a place with uh, higher ambient air pollution, uh, you're probably going to have to change filters more. 
you know, a sparsely occupied building, a place somewhere with relatively clean ambient air, not a lot going on in terms of indoor sources, you can go longer. And so there's that kind of experiential piece, practical piece that's really important. And then to, to answer the real, the real question that you're asking that I'm kind of uh, avo- avoiding here to a certain extent, in terms of, you know, how you know that you've got good filtration is or good air cleaning is really one that, you know, follow best practices. And there's a ton of guidance from, you know, independent sources like ASHRAE, uh, from NAFA and the National Air Filtration Association, from places all over the world, kind of similar organizations all over the world. Not everyone loves to read that stuff. Not everyone has time to read that stuff. But there is a lot of great practical guidance, and that's really worth your time to kind of unpick your favorite organization that you have access to. And that's a really good source for kind of determining what filter to use. But the other piece, and I don't think we're quite there yet. There are some things that people can do, but this is where I hope we'll be in a few years is, you know, let's have a culture of in-situ testing. We can't do it all the time, but, you know, if we could start doing more and more of this testing, then we know how filters are actually performing and people can get around this decision of, oh, what filter do I think I should use? And, oh, this is how the filter performs. On that note, it seems like there's a whole bunch of, you know, Twitter warriors that are buying these handheld sensors for CO2 and then they're taking a picture when they're in a checkout line and maybe it's Black Friday. So there's a lot of people in a very small space and they go, oh my goodness, my air quality is terrible. And they, you know, it goes viral. But uh, I mean, in my opinion, that's the snapshot, not the movie. So what what is your take on, you know, the, these portable devices that are easy to come by? Uh, should we use them? Should we not? How good are they? Um, What are your thoughts? I feel like this is the exact same conversation that one could have about certification. Like on one hand, I love that people are measuring indoor air. Like the whole problem that people like me face is that indoor air is invisible, right? And so bad indoor air and good indoor air look exactly the same, often smell exactly the same, you know? And so, so having a sensor there is so important and people learn so much from sensors. Like I remember, um, you know, in my family, in my house, one of the most important sources of indoor air pollution is cooking. And, you know, I run the range hood fan religiously. I do all the cooking at home. I run the range hood fan and I run it, you know, for half hour, 45 minutes after I'm done cooking. And, you know, the noise is there. They have a relatively quiet, but not super quiet range hood fan. Family complains about it. And then one time we were doing, I often use my house for, for research much to the to the chagrin of my family. But anyway, uh, one time we had a particle monitor there just from, I forget even what I was cooking, nothing dramatic or anything. And it was just amazing. Like you see this massive spike and, oh, and I hadn't used the range hood fan uh, that time. I forget why, uh, probably cooking with, with my daughter or something and, and, and wanted to be able to talk with her and not have the noise. And so you see this massive spike and it persisted for like an hour after cooking. And so, you know, sensors are so good for that. Like, oh my God, I turn on my essential oil diffuser and the particle concentration spikes like crazy, you know? And uh, so, so I think it's really helpful for people to see, see things like that. Having said that, almost all of the low cost sensors, in fact, even a lot of my research grade sensors, some which cost tens of thousands or even a hundred thousand dollars are not giving the right answer. They're giving an answer 
but it's really suspect. So for example, let's talk about CO2. Uh, CO2, everyone likes monitoring CO2, putting up that picture of, you know, their kid's classroom with the CO2 at, at 2,500 ppm and talk about, you know, kind of the end of the world uh, from it. But, you know, that CO2 sensor, it's affected by a ton of things. It's affected by water vapor that's in the air. So we'll read a different number at high relative humidity than at low relative humidity. It's got this fundamental issue uh, called drift which means what zero PPM is changes over time on the instrument. So all the instruments have to do some type of correction for that. And that introduces a bunch of uncertainty. Plus, you know, it's a scientific instrument and it's one that's built relatively cheaply. And so it's got kind of an inherent inaccuracy and in, in built into it. So, so it's it. I almost never trust the number itself, but they're fantastic, almost all of them as relative instruments. So if you're in that classroom and it's usually 800 ppm and today it's 2500 ppm, that's a great indication that something is different. And, you know, maybe the windows are usually open and today they're closed. Or maybe there was a, a double sized class in the classroom because of some event. Or maybe there was something that involved uh, the students in the classroom being really active for a period of time. Or maybe the ventilation system had some flaw that developed. And so I think it's really, if people do that, I don't like the spot measurements, but I like that, oh, this is how it's changing over time. And then scientifically, we do a whole lot of research where we try and say, okay, we've got this low cost sensor. We know the absolute number is not, not very useful, but how that number changes over time is really useful. And we're doing all these things with machine learning and so on where we extract that data and process it from low-cost sensors. And we can do things like say, hey, how is that filter uh, actually performing? How much ventilation are we actually getting in the space? And I think that um, is what makes this kind of in-building measurement, this in-situ measurement so appealing, is that we can use low-cost sensors. Now, there's a lot of kind of background math, and so we're maybe not quite there yet. But I think that that's kind of the good way of using low-cost sensors, the relative measurement, not the absolute measurement. Jeff, a lot of people who listen to the podcast are people who want to do something proactive about the quality of air in their workplace. And one of the things that's available to them is the CAO initiative, which is the Chief Ergonomics Officer initiative. Now, I know you're not part of it, um, but you're aware of it. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on it. Yeah, so I think that that whole idea of empowering people to, first of all, think about their indoor air in a, in a formalized way, but also, you know, start the conversations about, you know, how do we address issues? And uh, I, I think that's what's so important about initiatives like that. You know, there is such a, like you talk to people, like indoor air has always been this funny thing because, you know, I can talk to a group of you know, lay people about indoor air and always have these great long conversations about all these things like, you know, oh, I have a cat. How does that affect my indoor air? Or, oh, you know, my, uh, my husband really likes to burn candles. How does that affect indoor air? You know, all these, all these things, you know, I really like, you know, my essential oil diffuser. Is that really bad? You know, all these conversations come up and people really care about it, but there's not, there's not a lot for reasons we've already discussed regulation or attention from a government perspective on it. So there's this kind of middle space where I think things like the CAO and other things are really, really important to kind of fill that space. And so both empower people to, you know, 
have resources, but also to get the information and then to be able to apply it to their own building. And I think that the conversations that arise become of that because of that are so important. I mentioned earlier one of the most important quotes I'd heard about indoor air quality. Another one that was really influential to me was from Ralph Gomery, who was a, a, a program director at the Sloan Foundation. At the time, I was early in my research career, just kind of starting to get engaged uh, in research. And I was at a meeting at the Sloan Foundation, which is in Rockefeller Center in New York City. And, um, you know, he had gotten engaged in indoor air and wanted to improve the filtration in Rockefeller Center. He wanted them to go to MERV 15 filters at the time. So, you know, it's a very kind of serious organization. He, he, he compiled a big binder, a big document of all the reasons why they should go to MERV 15, the economics, the benefits, everything else. And then he went to a meeting with the, the, the people who were decision makers, the building operator about this. And they were like, yeah, is it a good idea to go to MERV 15? And he was like, yes. And they're like, great, we're going to do it. And, and I think that's a lot of times how decisions are made is that, you know, people just don't have good resources, don't know what, but if someone who they trust uh, uh, is telling them, hey, this is a good, good thing to do, then people do it. And so I think that people like me are sometimes constrained by, we feel like we have to, um, provide a ton of evidence, make the argument like in a way that that is scientifically defensible and everything else. And that's important. But I think the way people make decisions is often way more more complicated than just the simple evidence basis. And I think we, we have to we have to really think about how to address that. And I think the answer is probably going to be it depends. Yeah. But, you know, when you're talking about at home, you know, you could make it a lab environment, always order out, don't use diffusers and, you know, live in a sterile environment. That's on way one end of the spectrum. The other end is you're cooking up a storm, you're not turning on the fan, you're lighting incense and the whole thing. How do you find sort of a happy middle ground between quality of life uh, as, as we know it and, you know, really good, healthy indoor air? Yeah. So uh, the way I always say it is, number one, we never want to be alarmist. People have way too much on their plates already. And telling people that indoor air is going to kill them both is, is generally speaking, not accurate and also uh, it doesn't actually help the problem. So I think number one is having good information that's, you know, I don't like the term balance, but I think that the idea is, you know, we're, we're, we're being very clear. There is a lot of things we don't know, a lot of things that are you know, these chronic health outcomes that are a long time in the future. So we never want to be alarmed. But the, the other piece is that who it is in the space really matters. You know, if you have uh, someone, maybe a child with asthma or someone else with respiratory per, uh, problems, or if you have an immunocompromise, I have uh, people in my friend circle, as well as I've talked with a lot of people over the course of the pandemic who have you know, someone in their in their family or in their household who's immunocompromised, how do you deal with that? And that's a, 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 a very different set of circumstances than, you know, if you have a, a household of kind of healthy individuals. And so, so who is there? And, and by the way, it's not that we should have different environments necessarily for those sets of individuals, but it's still thinking a lot about how activities are done. Cleaning, generates a ton of pollutants. I would never tell people not to clean, but you might want to think about how you're ventilating during cleaning, uh, who, who is present during cleaning. Uh, so, you know, choose to, to vacuum when that sensitive person isn't in the house. 
you know, make sure, you know, to the extent that weather allows it, you could, you open a window when you're cleaning, you know, same thing with, with cooking, you know, it's not so much don't cook. Cooking is so important in so many ways, you know, indoor air quality in some ways is, even though it's really impacted by cooking is kind of the last thing I want people to be thinking about, but it's still a risk and you want a management. So, so use that range hood fan. And, you know, if you're doing a kitchen renovation, you're going to spend forever thinking about what type of countertops do I want? What type of appliances? That kitchen range hood fan is kind of in the noise in terms of cost and so on. And so spend the, the 20 minutes doing the research on what's a good range hood fan and make sure it gets put in. Uh, it's not going to economically affect the cost of your kitchen renovation, but it's so important for your health. And uh, same thing, a lot of people, you know, especially in older apartments, maybe don't have a range hood fan. So make sure you're managing cooking pollution. That might be opening a window that, again, might be thinking about who's present during cooking. Uh, that might be, in some cases, uh, you know, get a really good portable air cleaner, one that deals with both particles and gases to use in the kitchen. Uh, you know, so there's a lot of solutions here, but it's a lot about thinking about the risk uh, and, and, and managing that risk. And then the third thing is, you know, always come back to basics. Get rid of sources. When it's not possible to, to get rid of sources, ventilate. Sometimes you have to clean the air with ventilation. And uh, in addition to ventilation, think about filtration and air cleaning. And, you know, those three things, if you're doing those three things, you're going to be a long way towards having good indoor air. And so in some ways, it's so complicated. We've talked about all different pollutants, all different things. Yes, I get that. But on the other hand, we know what to do. Jeff, thank you so much for some great real world practical advice. Uh, I mean, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. And uh, where, can, where can people find you? Uh, I'm at the University of Toronto. Uh, if you Google me at the University of Toronto, you'll, you'll find me. There's one other thing that we haven't talked about that I always like to say in interviews like this. And I think it's, it's, it's really important kind of to have it as part of the discussion. And that is, you know, we have a, a lot of health and other disparities in our society, right? We have some people who have access to healthcare, other people who don't for economic or other reasons. And I think it's really important that we start thinking about indoor air quality as a way of maybe making some of those disparities smaller. And so, uh, uh, you know, there's lots of specific examples around the world, but I think the basic idea here is we are being, as a society, kind of economically foolish by not investing in indoor air because there are these huge benefits, health benefits, productivity benefits, cognitive function benefits, well-being benefits. And so I think it's really important that we be very sensible in our economic analyses so that we're, like, we always think about the costs, of course, but we should also be thinking about the benefits. And in fact, every major analysis I know that has been done shows that the benefits of investing in indoor air vastly, uh, uh, are, are vastly larger than the costs of doing so. And, you know, I know it's complicated. The same people don't always pay the costs and get the benefits. But I think at a broad level, we should be thinking uh, about the benefits as much as the costs. And then we should be thinking about, you know, who are we providing indoor air quality to? I think as a field, we'll be so much less kind of healthy and strong if we are making indoor air, you know, having good indoor air for the wealthy and for the 
well-connected and poor indoor air for everyone else. I think we want to really think about this as a way of addressing some of those disparities. And, you know, right now in Canada, I would say that one of the number one issues is housing and housing availability. And that's huge. I mean, we have a massive need for, for housing. And that's true, I think, in a lot of the world. But we also should be thinking about the housing quality piece. Part of the reason we have such a need for housing is we have a lot of housing that's overcrowded, and that leads to a whole bunch of indoor air quality issues. And so if we were thinking about, okay, as we move towards a path of having enough housing, are we also thinking about the, the indoor air and the health that stems from that? And I want to be very clear. I'm not a um, indoor air quality above all. It's one piece. It's a piece I happen to love talking about and and so on, and I'm enthusiastic about, but I recognize it's kind of one piece in a much larger set of issues. So I'm not saying improving indoor air solves all of our problems. I'm just saying it's a very cost-effective way to deal with some of our problems and has all kinds of positive benefits if we do it well. And clean air certainly is a, a human right. So for those that are maybe not as, as well off or don't have the, the luxury of going to a, a beautiful office tower in some major city, you know, any practical uh, words of wisdom for improving indoor air quality at, you know, on the cost effective standpoint for those, those areas that are not in these sort of wealthier areas? What are your thoughts? Yeah. So I think, you know, one of the things is we've just seen this explosion uh, because of COVID. It's an old idea, but of, you know, kind of very low cost air cleaners, uh, you know, so not everyone has a forced air system, for example. So this idea of talking about even filters, you know, doesn't necessarily apply to, to everyone, uh, uh, certainly in the world, but even in, in, in the U.S. and Canada. And so you can search how to build a low-cost air purifier, and uh, that's a good example of something that everyone can do uh, that is very cheap. But, you know, even more basic than that, it's kind of understanding the sources. I mean, I am, to this day, you know, when I don't use my range hood fan and I am measuring air pollution, I'm still shocked how high particle concentrations get in my kitchen uh, when I'm cooking. I mean, the, the highest particle concentrations I've measured in any indoor environment over my entire career was in May, several years ago. My family was out of town. So I said, hey, I'm going to clean the oven. And, you know, it's something I hadn't done. So I put the oven through the self-cleaning cycle. Uh, which you shouldn't do if you talk to an appliance repairman, but that's a, another subject. I did it because I didn't know that at the time. You know, it was a May, relatively mild day. I had doors and windows open. I had the range hood fan on. You know, it was, the house was really well ventilated and the particle concentrations got to just shocking levels during the self-cleaning cycle, right? And so it's just like these ordinary activities we do really do generate a ton of, of, of air pollution. So just knowing that, knowing that cooking is important, knowing that cleaning is important, knowing that combustion is always going to generate pollution, you know, no matter whether it's candles or cigarettes or, or cannabis or, or whatever it is. And so, so knowing these basic sources and, you know, managing the emissions from those sources is, you know, something that's available to, to everyone. It's, right. But, you know, kind of knowledge is power to a certain extent. And so, so much of indoor air quality is we have, I mean, we've known about there's, there's uh, pieces in Leviticus and the Bible about mold and moisture problems. There's writings from hundreds of years ago about indoor air quality. Uh, and so we've known for a long time the basics 
And so people can really do a lot based on the knowledge we have now. And then hopefully we'll move to a place where we're actually doing kind of very serious, well-resourced, appropriate measures in every endorphin. You've been listening to our extended conversation with Jeffrey Siegel, Professor of Civil Engineering at the University of Toronto. And our thanks to Jeffrey for being so generous with not only his time, but also the quality of the information that he gave us. Just stunning. Do remember the original podcast with Jeffrey, which covers straightforward strategies like controlling sources, optimizing ventilation, and choosing effective filters is available right now on your podcast player. Also, if you would like to discover more about clean air or even consider joining Camphill's Chief Ergonomics Officer Initiative, you'll find lots of information and free training resources at chiefergonomicsofficer.com. There's also a LinkedIn group, which you're welcome to join us on. Also, links for all of those in the description area of this podcast. Finally, please do spread the word and share our podcast with a friend or a colleague. Just tell them to search Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever they get their podcasts for Let's Talk Clean Air. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes, and from John Holmes at Camphill, thank you for listening.